that's good application again to what we discussed this morning, but also in the cares that we carry in our conscience. Give them to the Lord and anxiety. And when we, even when sooner or later we sin against the conscience, whether we're the weak or the strong, and we sin because we aren't fully informed or we sin even though we are, God's grace is always there to forgive and take away the guilt of that, that guilty anxiety um, and uh, be our companion and help us along. So good, good, good thoughts for tonight. As we turn back again to Romans 14, looking at verses 20 through 23, and we're taking this in smaller chunks because there's a lot of things that I want to make sure that we understand. I think we're going to go with this another week, maybe two. So, and then after that, I'm still praying about what the Lord would have us to do on Sunday evenings anyway. But if you have questions or through this series and had a lot of a good feedback and a lot of thought provoking things have been encouraging to me to see you think through these things. If there's something I haven't been clear on or something that as you've studied this, you've wondered um, let me know in the next week or so, and we'll take time to go through those. And, uh, you know, this, is, this has been a wonderful study for me, and I think it, God's been using it in our lives here as a church family. I just want to make sure that um, I can help in any way I can give further understanding as the Lord has given me that understanding. Um, as we've worked through Romans 14, um, Paul has made it clear, hopefully it, it's clear, that in the midst of the strivings and quarrelings that we have as a church family, that the goal is first of all to be in unity and, and to work together. Um, he, he talks about that first of all in the beginning of Romans 14 with an illustration of the weak and the strong, um, working through unity together. But he, he goes in the next part of the passage, verses 5 through 12, and reminds us that the best way is for each of us to seek to be fully convinced in our conscience, in every conscience issue, that we should, that the weak should not be satisfied, uh, not being fully informed, continue to seek to be a fully, to be fully informed as the spirit guides them, as the strong is gentle with them, not cajoling them or trying to push them into something that they're not ready to, um, experience that freedom that that strong person may have being careful as the Holy Spirit is careful with us. But the goal in this, in our conscience issues, is that in each issue, we are fully convinced, and we may come down differently on that, and each person will in different ways and in different issues. And these are conscience issues. I won't go back through all the different categories tonight, um, except to just remind us gospel uh, moral issues, uh, denominational differences, um, and then finally the, the conscience issues, which is what we're referring to, what Paul's referring to in Romans 14. So that is the goal, is for us to be fully convinced. But practically speaking, that takes a lifetime, right? There is no way, it'd be nice if we could just kind of program the conscience and the Holy Spirit did that and we just, for us anyway, It'd be nice to just have all that ready to go and we just follow our conscience. But there's a process 
because God is growing us. God is teaching the weak um, to depend on him. God is teaching the strong to be patient with the weak and with others and not just say, I've, I've got the right position. Now, come on, everybody, come along with me. No, there's plenty for the Lord to teach us through this process. And we need to learn these things. So as each of us are on this journey towards being fully convinced, we need to have unity in the meantime. And that involves pursuing peace with each other as we progress in our spiritual walk and spiritual, spiritual sanctification. And Paul is going to make clear in these verses tonight, he's especially focusing in these verses upon patience and forbearance with the weaker brethren. That is so important. And we mentioned this last week. In a world that gives lip service to caring for the weak, but in reality and policies and practices just runs right over the weak. There's no um, ultimate long-term concern. Um, the Christianity, on the other hand, moves towards the weak in concern and love toward them. And so we need to do, be willing to do that as well. So one other thing I, I just want to mention real quick before we get further into this, as I've been thinking this through, as, as this is one issue that's kind of a side note, but I'll mention this now. And that is, you know, even I, I, a lot of ministries and, and a lot of pastors have struggled with this issue, this conscience issue in the past. And maybe you've had an experience like this. We as pastors have to be careful to differentiate between conscience issues that the Holy Spirit has given to us and not necessarily imposing those on the whole congregation. Many times there are leaders that say, well, in, in these conscience issues, this is how I feel about this. And sometimes a leader may, may be the weak, um, and yet they expect everybody else to come along with them and, and be as fully sensitive to something as they are. And that doesn't work as well. It did stand out to me as something that even as leadership, we have to be careful about to understand these conscience issues and, and keep it in the right category, keep it in the right frame of mind and not necessarily to impose those uh, on the whole congregation as a whole, but make sure that we're biblical in all these things. Okay, so specifically then, the strong is addressed in their response to the weak again. And Paul is going to point out here that we should not give cause for stumbling. The work God is doing in the weak brother and sister is too important for that. Look at verse 20 of chapter 14. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Father, continue to give us further understanding. And tonight, uh, those of us who you have led um, to the strong position, we pray that you would especially help us tonight in, in different areas. Lord, again, we understand that some of us are, are weak in different areas, some are strong, but that we should not lord over 
um, the freedom that you have given some of us in conscience issues over others that still are working their way through that. That as blessed as it is to have that freedom, it is a blessing from you. That is even more blessed to gently lead along others who you're still working in their lives and to encourage them and exhort them and see them strengthen in their faith and know that it is a direct result of the Spirit's work in their life. Help us not to trample over or in any way damage the work you're doing in the lives of others, but in unity, work together, minister together, and serve together. And ultimately, like we saw last week, that our identity as a church is not on these conscience issues, but it is spiritual growth, discipleship, and unity. Father, give us that here at Village Chapel Baptist Church as well. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Don't give cause for stumbling. And the first few verses, two verses, 20 and 21, do not cause a spiritual brother, or we'll say sibling, brother and sister, to stumble. And Paul picks up again, because it is a sin. Paul makes it clear here to cause another to stumble. This is serious. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. And Paul here, this is obvious, I think, right? He's giving a command to the strong person. Um, Do not tear down the work. What is that work of God that he's referring to? Well, I think it's clear. It's the work that God is doing in another individual's life. And that should be very precious to us. As a pastor, as I see God working in the lives of our folks, that is precious to me. Whether it's one that has strengthened in their faith over many years, or maybe a a new believer that they're just the, the first sprouts are coming up and you want to carefully protect those sprouts and make sure that they grow up strong and become all that God wants them to be. Uh, It's a joy to see people growing in their faith. And you don't want to mess that up. As a pastor, I don't want to mess that up. And you shouldn't want to do that either. We should want to be careful. Don't destroy the work that God is doing in other people's lives. Well, how can I avoid that, Pastor Rock? Well, one of these things is don't push your conscience freedom on others where it's obvious that they don't have that freedom yet. Be gentle. Be careful. Don't tear down God's work. Um, Don't demand. In other words, in this specific issue, remember, uh, Paul has gotten a little more specific in this example And he does seem to be referring to food. He said in verse 14, if you'll look back, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. This does seem to refer to some sort of ceremonial uncleanness, that there is some sort of food, maybe along the lines of what he addresses in 1 Corinthians 8 that has been offered to idols or some sort of food uh, where... um, The Jews, even though they're saved and they have freedom to eat, they still look at that and say some some meat and some food as, oh, I just, I still can't get over the fact that it seems unclean. The Lord's still working in my life there. Whatever that is, um, in, in in this example here, Paul's saying, for those that have that conscience, you be careful, those of you that know, that understand the full truth of that, still. 
Don't demand to eat whatever you want at any time at the cost of another spiritual growth or even their spiritual destiny. And it really does seem that as Paul is using terminology here that indicates that a person can be very damaged or deeply hurt if we're not careful. And I still think of that picture of that little plant that's just growing up and that little shoot and how you have to be so careful, whether it's a flower or whether it's something in your garden, how you have to be especially careful and gentle with it so that it can grow up to be what it needs to be. We certainly don't go through and we just don't trample over it and do whatever we want or, you know, just put it out in, in the direct sunlight and never water it. We're, we're careful. and We kind of have to have that mentality with um, folks that got in, in different issues where God is working in their life. Um, and then Paul makes clear that the strong person, everything is indeed clean. Um, the conscience position of the strong is the right one. And we know that because, again, go back to Acts and the vision with Peter, right? And God made it clear to Peter. Peter said, I, have, I don't know, Lord. And God said, don't call unclean what I've said is clean. He's made it very clear. So we know the correct position on this. And Paul agrees with the strong. This is, you're right. God has led you. You're fully convinced you're, you have the right position. But still be careful. It becomes sin if it causes a weaker brother or sister to stumble or it grieves his or her conscience. It is wrong, he says, for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Um, we have, well, it's a blessing to our boys. It can be a great pain sometimes to their parents. We have a beautiful, wonderful, large Lego collection at our house. Um, not as large as uh, Linda Rush's Lego collection. That's just another uh, step stage entirely. But we do have our, our own um, uh, collection, and they, they tend to spread out all over the house after a while. And if you're not careful, if you step on one of those things at bare feet, boy, you know it. You almost have to go to the hospital. It's so painful. But the boys love those Legos, and they really get in. And some of the creations, I think they've brought some of them to church. If you've seen some of them, there's ships, there's submarines, there's tanks. And I just, and sometimes they'll bring things up to me. Dad, I made this just for you. And oh, that's wonderful. And I'll set it up on my desk. And after a while, I have this collection of these different Lego figurines where I don't have much more room on my desk, but I'm proud of them and collecting dust and things. But it's neat to see them do this. But there have been times, I'm not going to say who in particular, where some brothers have wanted to build something and they had a particular Lego and they're very careful. You know, Dad, I have to have this particular Lego piece. And when their brother's not looking, they may on occasion take a couple pieces from that brother's creation that he spent so much time on and they'll add it to their own. And just somehow it just ends up and, and we asked them later on how that happened. Well, I don't know. It just, I, I didn't realize that was off of his. And now I have my own creation here. And uh, there's a lot of angst a lot of times when that happens, because you have one brother that in effect is tearing down one's Lego creation for his own benefit and is thereby weakening 
that other brother's creation and what he has been building, what he has been working on. And there's a lot of grief and concern. And we get many opportunities to be able to, to deal with it. Not all, I'm, I'm making, I don't want to make it sound, it doesn't like it happens every day. But when it does happen, there's a lot of concern. Well, you know, Legos is one sphere, right? Well, folks, why aren't we as Christians many times concerned about um, God's work in people's lives as much as we are? Maybe you're not concerned about Lego creations, but you have other things. God is doing work in people's lives, and it is very disconcerting, and it causes much angst when we interfere for our own selfish purposes in that work that he's doing. It's important, much more important than a couple Lego creations is the work that God is doing in people's lives, and so we need to treat that very carefully. One other thing that was brought up last week, and I really appreciate that, this whole aspect of um, can we affect literally another person's spiritual destiny? Uh, let's look at those verses again, um, back to verse 15. But if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for who Christ died. That destroy, it does seem to indicate that there is a potential that one could literally leave the faith. And verse 20 that we just read, do not destroy the work of God. And we're working through this, and I had to think more about this week. How do you reconcile God's sovereignty and salvation that we all attest is, is a part of Scripture? We've seen that throughout the Gospel of John. Remember, Jesus has made very clear that my Father has given me these, and um, I have kept them and will keep them, so that he's referring to they won't fall away. And yet, at the same time, and he also, we have the verse in Philippians 1.6, referring to not just salvation, but God's sovereignty and his ability to keep us in sanctification, right? Paul says clearly, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So how can our actions affect that in any way? And that's a difficult one. Here, you know, so often we have these tidy little systems, theological systems that, you know, even, even for leaders and theological um, seminary professors and things, and they have their position on things. Uh, maybe somebody's a full Calvinist, the, the, the full point tulip and, and all of that. And then you come to verses like this, and it's just not as tidy as what you'd like. Now, all I can do is go back to, again, folks, it is clear that God is sovereign in salvation. And it is clear, Paul makes clear, that when Jesus begins his sanctifying work in true believers, he's going to finish it. Totally confident in that. And yet, on the other side of this, there is Paul's warning that somehow we can do great damage towards someone and I believe he's referring here to someone who has made a false profession. But still, that in some way or another, only God understands this, but that we can affect that person and damage their faith to the point where they leave the faith. How does that work? I can't make it mesh in my human mind, but God knows how it works, right? 
And so, and even last week, as I mentioned, I don't know of a lot of scenarios where I can point to and say this might have happened or this might have been the case. But the very fact that Paul warns us about it says it could happen. It could happen. So the very fact that it could happen means we need to be careful and we need to proceed with caution. It is a sin to cause another to stumble. On the positive side of this, it is good to keep another from stumbling. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And Paul is going to admit here in just a minute that the freedom that the strong has in conscience issues is a good thing. He's going to say it's a blessing that God has given you. You ought to be uh, thankful for that. But here he's saying it's not a good thing to flaunt your freedom at the expense of a weaker brother. And again, we're talking individual to individual here. As we work in individual relationships with people in the church, for you to flaunt and somehow brag about your freedom and enjoy your freedom in the midst of somebody else who's struggling with that is not good. Paul says it's good to hold off, to hold back from enjoying that freedom in order not to cause your brother to stumble. Yes, the freedom's good, but it's also good to withhold yourself, to withstand in order that we don't cause another brother to stumble. And his example here, again, of this eating and drinking seems to have more connection to some sort of ceremonial uncleanness that was a problem for the weaker brethren in this issue. Maybe Jewish food regulations, maybe offered food offered to idols. We're not told for sure. But that word unclean gives us the idea that that is the example that he is using here. So somehow this food and wine was viewed as unclean by certain believers, as verse 14 indicated. Okay? Um, is this example referring to somebody who has a conviction against not drinking wine at all? And this is, I'm going to take a, just a moment here to address this. This has come up in a number of our conversations. So in a, in a very quick way, I'm going to address this issue about alcohol so that you fully understand my um, conviction and my stance on this. And, but before we get to that, let's have an understanding. As Paul mentions this, he says, is he referring to those that can't eat meat or drink wine as somebody that has a conviction against drinking wine at all? Folks, that really is, from what we can tell from the New Testament times, he's not referring to total abstinence. Why? Because pretty much everyone drank the New Testament wine, almost like water, um, that's mentioned here. And what we have to understand, and I'll get to in a minute, is what this wine looked like or what it tasted like then, how it was made. But in this example, he seems to be referring to the conscience issue was wine that was somehow unclean, maybe involved in idol worship, or was somehow considered unclean, and that the strong person could say, I could still partake in that, but the, um, the weak person says, no, I, I can't do that. I can't drink that. So he's not referring to total abstinence of wine because the wine that was drank in New Testament times, it was a common beverage that everybody drank. Um, but it was probably most likely wine that had been made unclean in some way. So let's talk about this. 
Let me just give you my stance on this and then I'll, I'll back it up with some more information. But folks, I, I really do, after studying this for many years, believe that today's alcoholic beverages, with maybe the exception of some beers, almost all fit under the category of red wine that the Bible forbids in Proverbs 23. Let me just give you some quick data on that. What was the wine like in New Testament times? Well, under normal conditions in the way in the fermentation process and the way that they made wine in New Testament times, the resulting wine would contain no more than maybe 7% alcohol. And there's many secular authorities that have studied this time period that say unequivocally that it was a common practice for people to dilute the wine with at least two parts water and sometimes as many as 20 parts water. And that would reduce the alcohol to less than two and a half percent. And it was those that didn't reduce the alcohol to which the Bible gave its warnings toward. And that was the red wine. Or there's some that say this was actually, it was alcoholic in content, but it's even more like it was more pasty than, than uh, liquid form. And they would add that to their drinking water. Why? What is a very practical reason that they would want to add? Actually, there's two practical reasons why people at this time would want to add this wine with its alcoholic content to their beverage. Purification. Okay, purification. That's, is that what you're going to say, Tom? Yeah, my understanding is even today, the water is not particularly very good uh, in, in Israel, in, that, in the Middle East. And so they still have to have purification processes. And this was the case back then. Pure drinking water was very scarce. And alcohol, uh, they discovered in the ancient world, that alcohol in the wine killed enough of the harmful bacteria that it made the water acceptable. But at the level that this was mixed, folks, the average person would have to consume nearly a gallon of the mixture to be intoxicated. It's just not practical <laughs> as far as a vehicle for that. Um, it was then the use of undiluted wine with its deep red color that scripture condemns as dangerous. And I'll just read that for you again here uh, very briefly from Proverbs 23. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Here we go. Do not look at wine when it is red. It is that undiluted wine that's fully fermented, that full alcoholic content. Again, at its best, was still only 7% or so, right? Don't look at it. Don't even look at it. Don't even consider drinking it when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Let's compare that description of wine that did have alcoholic content in the New Testament to the beverages we have available to us today. Standard table wine, and this is not personal experience, by the way. This is study. Um, just make that clear. Have as much as 14% alcohol because of the addiction, the addition of extra yeast and the control of heat generated by the fermentation process. Modern wine actually has more than five times as much alcohol as the diluted wine in the ancient world. 
And in fact, they have technology that can fortify wines such as port or sherry to add or additional alcohol that can make that alcoholic content 18 to 24%, hard liquor, vodka, gin, 40%, and even beer, as mild as you know it, it is as far as the alcoholic content, that's still four to seven percent alcohol. It's not the same thing. The wine that's talked about in the Bible is a whole different factor from the wine that people, um, that we have access to today. And we have a friend, he was actually the head of the BJU Press for a while, his name was Bill Appellian, he was saved, um, he lived in California, and his family were wine, were vineyard care, or caretakers for over 100 years. He knew the wine business very well. And he gave personal testimony how they were able to add so much more alcohol to modern wine and modern alcohol beverages than they were ever able. The people in the New Testament times couldn't even imagine drinking the type of alcoholic beverages we have today. Um, so there, there's this, and this is kind of my quick stance on this. There's also, from a spiritual standpoint, when you drink alcohol, there's a loss of resources. It's very expensive. There's a loss of discernment. And most importantly, there's a loss of control, even in a little bit of the alcohol, because it's so heavy in alcoholic content that we have today. All of this together, for me, as I've studied this, I'm convinced that um, this is a moral issue. It's not a conscience issue. But this is a moral issue. The Bible clearly, from my study, does not condone the alcohol that we have today. Now, there are conscience ramifications of that. Um, some people would go to a restaurant like Applebee's and be able to eat there and enjoy the food. I know others that wouldn't be able to do that because it has such a bar-like atmosphere that they're really bothered in their spirit about the alcohol that's served there. That would be a conscience issue based off of a moral issue that we shouldn't drink um, alcoholic beverages today. So in all these issues, they can kind of morph into conscience issues, and we just have to be aware of that. So that's the background behind what Paul is talking about here as he's mentioning this example of meat and wine. Then he's going to continue on here. Hopefully that's, that, that's understandable to you. That's my quick version. If you have any questions, feel free. Um, I've got some, some more data here about that wine and alcohol issue that I'd be glad to share with you, uh, but we need to move on. Verse 22. We're also going to see, Paul says, do not cause a spiritual brother or sister to sin. But with that, he does mention in verse 22 that those who are convinced are blessed. It is a blessing to them. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. And he's not saying, Shh, don't ever enjoy the freedom and conscience that you have, except, you know, when you're alone all by yourself. No, what he's referring to here is that you have the freedom um, to enjoy that conscience freedom that God has given you, because he says, let's continue the verse, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, he's describing one who is strong, who is fully convinced on the issue, and um, he does not have to feel condemned 
um, for that freedom that he has in his conscience. It's a blessing. And Paul says, enjoy that. Feel free or, or look at it as a blessing. Enjoy that freedom. He's not saying that they can't ever enjoy that freedom and that conscience issue that they have. But he does say, hem it in. And be careful when you're around the weaker brother. Because, verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Um, this whole idea of tying in faith with this conscience issue really seems to be best to think of this when, when Paul uses faith in this conversation. He's referring to convictions that people have uh, through their faith and the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. But maybe I can describe it this way. The weak who does not have the freedom of conscience to participate in eating what they consider unclean is the example, but they can't eat a good conscience because of the level of faith that they currently have. God is still doing a work in their life, and it could literally affect their relationship with him if they stumble over some of these conscience issues. It could hinder their faith in the work that God is doing. Um, I, I thought the, the picture came to mind of a cocoon. And God's work in that amazing process, metamorphosis, right? Where he takes that sometimes ugly looking caterpillar and that makes that, that what is it, a chrysalis, a cocoon. And days later, maybe it's weeks sometimes, uh, many times a beautiful butterfly comes out of that. And my boys have, over the years, been um, fascinated by that process. But what is one of the things that you have to tell kids, especially, when the, the, the insect is in that cocoon and he's changing, don't tear open the cocoon. Don't, and, and even, and you've probably heard this as well, that as a butterfly is fighting to get out of that cocoon, he is actually in the fight and in the process strengthening his wings. Have you heard this before? And so if someone tries to help them, and sometimes small children especially, oh, we got to give them a little bit of help and, and, and just kind of tear away some of that cocoon so that he can get out a lot uh, more quickly and he'll be better. That butterfly ends up being malformed for the rest of its life because it needs to struggle through that process. And folks, I think that's a great picture of what Paul's talking about here. We have to be careful not to, as the strong, just tear open that cocoon or try to help that butterfly that's trying to, that God is doing an amazing work in and strengthening them. No, let God do his work. God will make it very clear if he wants us to step in and offer something, or if that person, remember, we, we've said, but this doesn't necessarily mean that the strong can't explain their position, but that they can't adamantly cajole or pressure the weaker brother into following their freedom. That could have devastating consequences. And Paul is clear here. If someone can't eat in faith, that they don't, if they have a conviction against something because their faith hasn't gotten to the level that the strong has, to where they understand their freedom, then they still are sinning. And we have caused them to sin. And we can all agree that's wrong. That shouldn't happen. So as we finish up with this particular part of the passage, let's just go through these things again. 
Is it wrong for a believer to enjoy his or her freedom of a particular conscience issue? No. In fact, Paul says clearly, it's a blessing given to them. Enjoy that. But just be careful because it does become sin when they refuse to put it aside or forego that conscience, that freedom for the sake of another spiritual well-being. Because, folks, that's just selfish, right? We don't have to be involved in that. We're thankful. God gave me the freedom of conscience to be able to do this. It's wonderful. But now I'm with a weaker brother and I don't get all frustrated and angry and just, you know, they're putting limits on my fun. And again, ultimately, we're convinced that it pleases God. It ultimately is what pleases God, not pleasing ourselves. And therefore, it should be easier for us to say, I can forgo this for the sake of, of that weaker person. And if we tend to get a little proud, and we do as human beings, that we have the stronger position, remember again, folks, that you will be the weaker brother in another issue. <laughs> and you will want that person to be gentle with you and careful with you, because it's not across the board. Here's the strong group over here. Here's the weak. We're all weak and strong in different areas. We're all growing. We're all, again, the, what's the goal? Be fully convinced in our conscience. Praise the Lord when we get there. Be careful with those that are still in the process of getting there. And folks, Jesus is serious about this expectation of unity and love for one another in his body, the church. So let's not go to war against the weak, but let's show them the love of Christ and be in unity together. Father, this is hard. We're, we're thankful for how you work in our lives and how you work in different conscience issues. And thankful when you, the Holy Spirit makes it clear that we have freedom in our conscience to do different things. But it becomes hard, and especially in our culture today, when other people seem to inhibit and infringe upon our ability to enjoy that freedom. And Lord, help us for the sake of unity to be willing to be selfless, put that aside. And brother to brother, sister to sister, be able to work with each other and be careful with each other, knowing that we will want that same sort of care and concern when it comes to weak issues in our lives as well. Father, we know that it's so important, unity within the body. Jesus prayed for this before he went to the cross. And so we pray that you would help us as Village Chapel Baptist Church to be unified, that we would be an example, that we would be a reflection to our community, not of all of our conscience idiosyncrasies, so to speak, but that we would be an example of love and unity of the brethren and of spiritual growth and care and concern and discipleship. Father, that would be a wonderful thing to be known for in this community. And so we pray to that end that that would take place and help us to be aware of the weak around us and be careful with them as they continue to grow. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.